0: morning. It is Friday, the 16th of April. We are Easter people. I want you to keep that in focus this morning. I want you to keep that in focus today and in the weekend, which is ahead. We are Easter people. We are people who recognize the goodness and the grace of God. We are people who stand or kneel, bowed low at the foot of the cross, acknowledging the incredible depths of human sin, satisfied by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And we are the people who stand at the empty tomb with the radical realization of the resurrection, which accomplishes for us the possibility not only of, right, sin being put to death, its consequences, and um, its power, like that happens on the cross. But what happens, um, at the empty tomb, is that a way is made for us to live again—real life, full life, joyful life—and yes, life eternal in the fullness of the presence of God. So that is the the future to which we look. Um, that is the the reality in which our hope is grounded. And yet we live as resurrection people. We live as people of Easter in in what I will describe as the meantime between the already, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, and the not yet, his return, when all things will be set right and made new. Um, And so that leaves us as Easter people confronting headlines like we confront today. Uh, The news of another mass shooting, this time at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis, leaving eight families grieving this morning and many others uh, injured and frightened And in this story, uh, in that story, uh, police arrive as the good guys. But in headlines just north uh, of Indianapolis and just east of Indianapolis and just west of Indianapolis, we have other storylines today um, that feature police officers um, and the death of individuals and um, different storylines And so we have police body cam footage this morning revealing that the 13-year-old boy who was shot by a police officer on March the 29th in Toledo, Ohio, that that teenager, yes, did drop a weapon and was in the process of raising his hands in surrender when the officer shot and killed him. In Minneapolis, we have former Brooklyn Center police officer Kim Potter, uh, who appeared yesterday in court to face charges of second-degree manslaughter, in the death of 20-year-old Dante Wright, body cam footage in that case shows uh, Potter shouting Taser, uh, but then pulling her service weapon and shooting Wright as he failed to comply uh, when officers sought to arrest, arrest him during a traffic stop when they discovered there was an outstanding weapons charge. These are complicated stories. These are stories of very young people shot and killed by police officers. And all of this is taking place in the midst of a nation and a world, really, focused on the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Uh, Closing arguments will be heard on Monday in that case, and it will go to the jury. Um, So in the midst of all of this, we are Easter people. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we pray? How do we live? How do we seek and speak for and advance justice, real justice, in the midst of such a tragically broken world. It's a challenge. I don't deny that. But I also don't deny the power of God. And so let us be people who recognize the power of God demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then let us be people who say, you know what? Um, With God, we we can answer the challenges of our day. With God, we can restore our communities. We can build systems that do work. with liberty and justice for all. We can do this. We can do this. Um, so let's uh, let's be people who are focused in those directions this day, even as we ardently pray for the concerns uh, around in and among us. Matt Hawkins is up next. He and I are going to talk about some life headlines across the country related to the beginning and the end of life, abortion and euthanasia. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. <laughs> Matt Hawkins joins us now. He's the former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He uh, he is a friend and a student, a colleague, um, and I love to talk with him. So, Matt, welcome back.
2: Good morning, Carmen. Welcome. glad to be back. Thank you so much. Good morning.
0: Well, you can you can say welcome to me. It's good. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I had to walk. I had to walk across the yard to the studio too. So well, there you go.
2: Uh, I'm rusty. It's been a couple of weeks, and I'm, I'm seriously <sighs> okay. fier- sipping my coffee. But
0: yeah. I got so tongue-tied yesterday on air. I um, I had to take a break. Like I had, we had to we had to go to break because I can't remember Paul. What was it that I couldn't I couldn't get my mouth around yesterday? <laughs> I'm something about clock, right? Oh, ticking clock. Uh, I couldn't you, come. You, up. Yeah, that's right, I couldn't say, that. say it. I had the clicking talk. I had, I, yeah, I had all kinds of things, but I could not come up with ticking clock. So there you go. The, the clock is ticking. Okay, yeah. so welcome Sometimes back. Sometimes you
2: um, need to just pause and hit the mute button yeah, and come back. Go to break. <laughs> yeah, to have some coffee.
0: Okay, so euthanasia. Um, euthanasia yeah. is in the headlines across the country and around the world. Spain has legalized it. New Mexico has become the latest state in the U.S. Um, lots of opinions on this topic. Maybe just give us a roundup. Where, you know, where, where are we? What's going on?
2: Yeah. So domestically, um, uh, and and a couple of North American notes, New Mexico is the most recent state, as you mentioned. It's now the nine states plus D.C. um, that has legalized assisted suicide and what we would appropriately call euthanasia. Assisted suicide is the is this is the attractive marketing way to put it. Uh, right. Mm. Um, assisted suicide. Uh, it's, that's, uh, it sounds compassionate, uh, when it, when it is definitely not. Um, so New Mexico is the latest. Um, but there are a couple interesting details. Uh, and then we'll, we'll get to Canada too. Um, that's passed it nationally, uh, which is, which is really discouraging. Um, or I think Canada may have had it or been flirting with it in some way and kind of expanded it. Um, New Mexico did a couple of things here. Um, so terminally ill patients with six months or left to live uh, would be able to request it. Okay. Um, it's the second state. And we look at it demographics and re- the interplay of religion. It's the second state after New Jersey, where a third or more of its population identifies as Catholic. And uh, for those who are aware, uh, Catholics for, um, for a very, very long time, have opposed euthanasia, um, and so it's a little interesting there that uh, another another state uh, with such a heavily uh, heavy Catholic history um, among its population is going for this. Um, and what Mex- New Mexico has done, it ought to be particularly concerning because now we are seeing the move from not just doctors being able to offer. Um, lethal medication, but New Mexico has gone a step further and, well, at least a step further uh, to allow physician's assistants and nurse practitioners to administer or to distribute um, this. That's a big problem. It may get it may get New Mexico law in problem in uh, in a problem with the federal agencies because Medicare prohibits nurse practitioners and physicians assistants from certifying a terminal progress of six months um, when it comes to hospice eligibility. So they may have some problems there. Um, so that's that's disconcerting. Um, in Canada, um, they passed. Um, basically expanded who is eligible for medical assistance in dying, is the name of their law. And uh, from a a report, I think from the Catholics, basically the legislation strips the requirement that a person seeking assisted suicide must have a, quote, reasonably foreseeable death, unquote, and also allowed a person to receive assisted suicide with mental illness as a sole underlying condition. So Mm. now, Carmen, in Canada, one does not even have to have... A, a certified official doctor um, diagnosed uh, p- impending death in the near future. One need only have some form of mental illness um, that is chronic. Um, and so this is really discouraging because instead of caring for people, that need our help and need love and need the love of God's people uh, for certain, but also need the love of their neighbors generally uh, we're Allowing them to dispense of their cells with a pill um, Which is tragic uh, on all fronts um, and I think you know <clears throat> where to start from this um, I, I think we're tempted to kind of look at the culture big picture and try to figure out what, what can be done. Um, that's probably not, there's probably not much to be done in in kind of the national culture broadly. Right. Um, but I think we need to look at our own churches and the own conversation within our own communities and our families, uh, and recognize where our, our, um, inclinations are related to death and dying and, and how we, we may be kind of unwittingly, uh, kind of swept away with this kind of um, this kind of really tragic thing, right? Nobody nobody looks at euthanasia on on a menu or on a shelf and says, "Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I'll have that." We we we, we kind of back into these uh, really unfortunate um, ethical problems um, because uh, we're unfamiliar with what's really going on behind the scenes, right? Or we're marketed to uh, with labels like assisted suicide and compassionate well, and dying. What?
0: And we're not including—we're not going first or or almost ever. It's not even that we're not going there first. We're not going to our pastor and sitting down and saying, this is what's going on with Grandma or this is what's going on with Mom um, or this is what's going on with Aunt, Aunt Susie. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We we are solely having those conversations with, with doctors and other medical professionals who are not always—who are often
2: not. Exactly right. Um, exactly operating right.
0: out of a Christian worldview. And the other person we're including in the conversation— um, and this is you know no no condemnation to financial planners, but that 's who 's included in these conversations it 's about yep. mm-hmm. it is in in so many cases this is about yeah. how much it costs to continue caring yep. for this individual who is now um, you know not functioning uh, you know with all of their faculties and um, yep. and the the financial burden becomes the determining factor in so many of these conversations. And I think that for Christians, we we have to be, we have to say that out loud. We have to say it to each other and we have to start talking
2: about it. Yep. You're absolutely right. All right. Hey, we got to take a very brief,
0: we got to take a very brief break. When Mm -hmm. we come back, I really do, because there's another pill issue out there. It's not only that people are, you know, taking physician prescribed pills to end their own life. Women are taking pills now to end the lives of their unborn children. 40% of abortions in the United States um, are now mm. chemical abortions or simply require the taking of a pill. I'm going to talk with Matt Hawkins about that in just a moment. All right, continue my conversation with Matthew Hawkins. You can follow him on Twitter at MTHawk. Um, Matt, let's pivot from the end of life to what should be the beginning of life, but for far too many is also the end of life, and that is the topic of abortion in the United States of America. What's going on with chemical abortions or pharmaceutical abortions, the abortion pill?
2: Yeah, so uh, being reported uh, from the Guttmacher Institute, this is uh, Planned Parenthood's uh, research research arm, that about 40 percent of patients – in the u.s. um oh sorry i'm re- reading the wrong <laughs> reading the wrong data point sorry you got tongue tongue tied yesterday i'm reading You're the good. wrong data point today um so uh, apparently so abortion basically the, the gist is abortion pills instead of going to a uh, medical uh, professional like a doctor to have an, a medical abortion pills are becoming the, the new the a new the I mean, This is at uh, home alternative. Which, yeah, if you just think um, through
0: it for even just a moment, an at home alternative for this means a woman is all by herself when that that child's body is expelled from her body. And I, yeah. there are just parts of this, and then that person is flushed down the toilet. Like there, there are parts of this, Matt, that we have to stop and say what we are then consigning women to in terms of the way they are going to remember and grieve and suffer as a as a as an aftermath of this like I we have to stop and talk about what's going on like it
2: yeah we can't just say it's
0: just as simple as taking a pill and ending ending the life of another person that's what's happening but yeah but there's a whole lot more to it
2: Yeah. And I I think you're right to pair these two conversations together, the assisted suicide on the one hand and then the abortion pill on the other, because it is it speaks just so much to to our culture right now. Uh, Number one, you you have the like you said, the economic uh, swiftness of the whole thing uh, of both of these things. You have kind of the detachment from the loss of human life. Um, and you have this kind of individual sovereignty, which is uh you know uh, i think a it 's a distortion of uh hu- the human dignity of the individual, as we would describe from the bible right um so you have this hyper individualism i would you know you call it individual sovereignty, and so you have individuals or at least being sold that individuals uh have have choice so much and autonomy so much that we can choose the day of our death uh or the day of the death of of our little one and you know this to to get a little personal Carmen this abortion pill thing you know i'm really concerned that women are not getting the full picture about what happens here at home with this stuff um and those how of us who it have experienced I mean, I, yeah, yeah. Those of us who have experienced miscarriages, um, mm. you can either have that that uh, situation resolved in a hospital, or at certain levels of um, gestation, early levels of gestation, you you can have that done in, in the form of a pill at home. Um, that's that can be traumatic, Carmen, um, and uh, absolutely, uh, it's it's really not goodness gracious uh the the short of it is uh, my, my wife and I experienced uh, two miscarriages uh and they were both around 6 to 7 ish weeks gestation and and the first time um, uh they they gave us the pill to to resolve that thing and definitely uh we went to the hospital the second time because it was uh traumatic um, mm-hmm. uh, that experience so uh, without without going into the details so um I think the the pro life movement uh, we've got really uh, got uh, a situation on our, on our hands here in a big way, uh, and I think you know there clearly there are regulations that we can work on um, as far as limiting the distribution of this drug, um, but I think it's going to seem that kind of uh, level of government control over a pill. I think is going to seem even less obvious to people in our culture than even um, the legislation and the and the regulation of abortion clinics, which has now lost twice, right, at the Supreme Court at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can't we can't even get the Supreme Court to um, register that a, agree that a state is able to regulate an abortion clinic in the same way it regulates every other medical practice, including ambulances. Right, we can't even get them to agree. That um, uh, we we have to have the same regulations for anybody who's doing any kind of surgical practice, right? Um, uh, I imagine yeah, including ad, a far including more,
0: requiring a, them to have admitting privileges at hospitals. Yeah, yeah, like I, I, it's I, insane. It it, it really it, is. It, I mean, I, for those for those of you who are listening right now, and you you know you would argue the point with us that abortion is a medical. Um, necessity that it's a part of women 's health care you 're the people we 're talking with right now because if that 's true mm-hmm. if you then then let 's be consistent if that if you believe that to be true that abortion is necessary medical um, uh, coverage for women then yeah. then be consistent with your argument and make sure that every uh, abortion facility has admitting privileges at local hospitals and that it's run in the same way that any outpatient surgical center is run. Like let's be con- yeah. if we if you're going to argue that point then then be consistent in your argument. Um and, and and let's be let's honor women in this. If the argument if this is a pro-women argument, you know, it's about it's all about women's autonomy and the woman's right to choose, then let's be consistent in that and let's say let's honor the woman and let's not consign her to having this very traumatic experience at home by herself, where she will then be culpable, not just before the Lord, but before her own conscience for ending the life of her own child. Like, let's not fool, let's not blind ourselves and fool ourselves into thinking this is any less than that. I I just, it's it's just so heartbreaking. It's so troubling. And we talk to so many women years and decades after, um, you know, after they have had an abortion and they're still suffering. They're still they're they're, they're they're stricken with grief and it the trauma continues and oh i know all right we got to take it yeah. we we have to take a break and We're you and go. i have to right. talk about foster care adoption and the supreme court at another time but thank you matt thank you for thank you Carmen. your willingness to have this conversation out in public because i want to foment it among among others
2: yeah thank you Carmen. Thanks, have a great me. weekend
0: Yeah, you too, dear. All right, we'll talk with Matt Hawkins again. Next up is going to be Dan DeWitt. We'll do the Weekend Worldview Reader. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All righty, a gorilla, a lizard, and our longing for cosmic, I was going to say comic, cosmic justice. That's up next on the Weekend Worldview Reader with Dan DeWitt. Yes, yes, we are going to talk about... Godzilla and Hong Kong. Hong Kong? No. King Kong.
2: King, King Kong. Kong. Don't God, you know your bo-
0: monsters? I'm so, I'm so terrible. Oh. I'm so... I need a script, Paul. All right. Godzilla <laughs> and Kong. A gorilla, a lizard, and our longing for cosmic justice. Up next with Dan DeWitt. We'll be right back.
2: Do you have
1: video games at your house? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston. With Parenting Today's Teens. It's not bad to have video games in the house. Most likely, it's a lot of fun for the kids, and maybe you jump in from time to time as well. But what happens when gaming becomes an obsession? It started out as a way for your teen to hang out with friends, but it's become all-consuming, even addictive. Mom, Dad, don't let it slide. As a parent, you need to set up healthy boundaries that are age-appropriate. Like everything else that goes on in your house, keep your eyes open. Don't check out. If your teen can't balance his life on the console, help him find healthy alternatives. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Again, parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: Joining me now, Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. You can find everything we're talking about today at Theolatte.com as we jump into the Weekend Worldview Reader. Welcome back, sir.
1: Thank you, Carmen. Good to be back with you on this Friday morning.
0: A gorilla, a lizard, and our longing for cosmic justice. I'm going to go ahead and confess, I totally messed that up when I teased it a minute ago, and I described it as our longing for comic justice. So there you go. Tell us what's going on. What's going on? Why are you and I talking about a gorilla, a lizard, and our longing for cosmic justice this morning?
1: Well, the movie, Godzilla vs. Kong, is the biggest box office hit since theaters began reopening with the uh, the closing, shuttering of theater doors with the pandemic. And I think it's a good opportunity for, one, us to talk about something a lot of people are going to see, but then also what are kind of the worldview implications? Why are we always drawn to movies? like this. Years ago, there was uh, probably about a decade ago, there was an article in Time magazine by an author named Tally Sherat, and it argued that our optimism for things to be better is a part of an illusion that evolution is hoisted upon us. This optimism comes from kind of just a way of making sense of a world that otherwise doesn't have deeper meaning or purpose. I think the optimism is real. I think we're longing for something real because of what King Solomon said: God has placed eternity in our hearts. And movies like this, I think, are a reminder we want goodness to triumph, and we're willing to pay big bucks for it and buy a bucket of popcorn and enjoy the whole thing.
0: You know, I um, uh, monsters are real. Like I think part of my part of my conversation related to this is just acknowledging that um, every good piece of, of literature, particularly those that are, um, are is literature that we would, we would think about as at least including conversations with kids, I'm not saying that they're all kid-friendly for sure, but mm-hmm. like there's real monsters in good literature. There's real opposition um, because that reflects the reality of life.
1: Absolutely, and that's where you know a movie like this it kind of gives us an easy uh, a common enemy. It gives us this you know um, epic battle scenes, and then what what Tolkien described as a eucatastrophe, where in the mm. midst of darkness, that hope emerges. And we have to ask what you know what way of seeing the world kind of makes sense of these categories of clear boundaries of good and evil. This desire for justice to win out. And that's where movies like this remind us that's the Christian worldview in which we have a clear definition of what evil is, and also a clear promise that evil, evil isn't going to win, as, as dark as things are, and they are dark. And there are, as you said, real monsters in life. I mean, not Godzilla, not a giant monkey and a giant lizard, but there are real monsters. And there was a promise made in a garden in Genesis chapter 3, that the Son of God, the seed of woman, would defeat evil. And so I think movies like this are really just kind of the – Reverberation of that promise made in the Garden of Eden, and this you know this intrinsic longing for goodness to win out. And so I enjoyed the movie, I brought my twins, we had a lot of fun. Um, and I, you know I don't sit there and pick apart every bit of the movie and think about philosophy. We just enjoyed it, but it is a reminder um, that the Christian story tells us about a clear enemy and a clear victory.
0: Okay. Um, remind us for those of us that are not uh, students of the genre, Godzilla is a what, and King Kong is a what?
1: You know, so Godzilla's basically uh, like a dragon dinosaur thing. You know, Paul okay. might have to jump in, and he he might have some more. You know, kind of fanboy facts because, you know, I remember watching the black and white movie years ago, and it had been out for a long time. But it's a giant dinosaur, and then King Kong is a giant monkey who's been discovered somewhere else in the world. And they bring them together. Um, the, the movies – they have their own movies, and then eventually the movies merge, and they fight each other. And so this remake is um, kind of inspired by these old black and white movies. So that's what they are. They're It's an overgrown monkey and an overgrown salamander With fangs, and they're duking it out.
0: (laughs) Okay, so the reason that I asked that question is because also at the weekend Worldview Reader, um, in addition to things that you have written and invite us to reflect upon together with you, um, you also aggregate uh, a list of articles, and one of those articles seems like a good conversation to move to um, following the conversation about Godzilla and King Kong, or if we if if there had been a Jurassic Park. Uh, headline there that we could have woven in, this would be the next headline to tee up because uh, this is a news headline. Scientists create early embryos that are part human and part monkey. So tell us what's going on here and then uh, you know, give us a sense of how to think about it theologically.
1: Yeah, this is an article that came out on NPR, with NPR yesterday, um, and so there's actually an audio if someone wants to listen to that, and then you could read about it. But what scientists are doing is they're trying to come up with a way that they can um, develop and harvest human organs through other species. So is there a way to infuse, in this case, a monkey embryos with, with human um, whatever, human stuff, right? And so I'm not a scientist. Um, but scientists have created embryos that are a mix of human and monkey cells. Now, this is just something that's in a Petri dish, um, but we have to ask, what are, what are the serious ethical, and for Christians, theological ramifications of this? And so you have one Harvard professor who says, there are no ethical concerns because of our goals are lofty humanitarian ones. Well, mm. we need to see in a statement like that, what he's saying is, the ends justify the means. And as Christians, even if this were to eventually work, um, we have to ask, is that something that should be done? Now, is there a clear verse that says, thou shalt not mix monkey and human cells? Uh, No. But what we have to ask is, what is the value of human life, and is that something that we should tinker with? And I think that most ethicists and Christian ethicists are going to look into this and say, this is something that should not be done. Now, it's going to be more complex than that, and I'm not a scientist, but my early take on this is, this is something that raises significant concerns, and at least at this point, apart from a premature opinion on it, um, is something that is worthy of a lot of attention, and we need to stay posted on.
0: Yeah, I, I think that the the quote that you pulled there, um, this bioethicist uh, saying, uh, "I don't see this type of research being ethically problematic." It's aimed at a lofty humanitarian goal. The other, um, so that's sort of the pragmatic conversation that we mm-hmm. can have from a Christian worldview. The other one is a commodification or commercial um, answer to the question as well. Um, And that comes from this professor at uh, the Gene Expression Lab at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California, who says, you know, one of the major problems in medicine right now in organ transplantation is that the demand is much higher than the supply. So there Mm -hmm. is a commercial um, conversation or a commodification conversation to be had here as well at the intersection of medicine and uh, and religion and ethics and how we see people and, and, and body parts, frankly. Um, and so lots of conversations, I think, um, stimulated by these kinds of headlines. Um, when we come back from a very brief break, I'm going to pivot to the headline Planned Parenthood announces new clergy advisory board members. And Dan DeWitt and I are going to talk about the worldview and in- implications of the use of the word clergy and how we um, might understand that in today's sort of economy of theological thought. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. OK, I, I have no idea what that music is. Paul, you'll have to brief us in. <laughs> it's uh,
2: it's it's from the Godzilla versus King Kong trailer. Here we go.
0: Oh, well, there you go. He's so much better than I am. All right. I want to read a Bible verse as we enter into this next conversation. Yeah. So um, this is from 1 Timothy 4.3. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I really um that is the verse that that came to mind as I was um, as I was reading this article in religion news service that Planned Parenthood has announced new clergy advocacy board members um, and so I just I reflect on this with us.
1: yeah, I think we as Christians shouldn't be surprised that you know Planned Parenthood would want to do this 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 very much serves their purposes. And we shouldn't be surprised that there are clergy, those who've been ordained in some various denomination um, to serve as a ministry leader would support this. And so there is in America, re- American religious life, specifically Christian churches and denominations, there are certainly churches and ministry leaders who support abortion. So it makes sense that they're wanting to add to their brand a number of ministry leaders who affirm Um, abortion and affirm the mission of Planned Parenthood. The question we have to ask, is that something that Christians should do? And is that something that the Bible would allow us to do? And does that line up with the biblical view of human identity and human worth? And as you've already indicated, and as your listeners would assume, our answer to that would be no, not because we feel this way, not because we look down on someone who has had an abortion or would consider an abortion, but because God is the author of life and because human life has intrinsic worth before Him, and that's why Christians need to not be surprised, but we also need to just simply return to the Bible and make sure that that's our foundation for how we think about such issues.
0: I think this is one of those opportunities, Dan, to um, invite people to be consistent when, um, when they are speaking publicly about uh, what, what are certainly hot topics in the culture today, when you hear someone who is a Planned Parenthood advocate um, turn and then talk about the sanctity of life and the value mm-hmm. of life and the precious value of an individual, um, let's say, uh, whose life has been uh, ended in, in in a in an encounter with the police let's just use that as a very current example because this is language yeah. that you're going to hear um today mm-hmm. from uh from an abortion advocate who then you know has turned on her heels and you know is talking about the the Chicago Police Department failing to uh you know observe the the this paramount value of the sanctity of life and I'm thinking you don't value the sanctity of life. Like we have to have very sober conversations um, mm-hmm. about uh, about where um, where we put our feet. Like where is the solid ground upon which I stand, and then I have to stand there consistently. There's a con- mm-hmm. there's a, there's a need for a consistent application of um, of biblical values here in every direction, in every conversation. And so, um, you know, when we talk about abortion. We seem to know where we stand, but when we talk about end-of-life issues, we don't necessarily seem to know where we stand. And when we talk about um, other, other issues in the culture, we don't necessarily equally apply the same values at all times and all places. Talk about why Christians need to be consistent and why we need to be able to call others out when they are inconsistent.
1: Yeah, and in fact, our consistency is what gives us the moral credibility and, and even more authority to call someone else out for their inconsistencies. Um, you know, there's some things that being inconsistent on has very trivial results. You know, so if I'm inconsistent with my diet in a particular week, it's not going to change the world. I might have a harder you know go at it the next week, um, but if someone is inconsistent with. As a lifeguard, if they're inconsistent with caring for people who are are under their care, that could have really tragic results. And in the same way, when it comes to profound issues like the value of life, if we're inconsistent here, it's not just trivial consequences; it's really significant ones. And so, for Christians, what we need to consistently do is recognize the triune God who is there, who has revealed Himself in Scripture, and make sure that we're applying Scripture. To the way we think about these issues, from the pregnancy to the grave, from the cradle to the grave, however you want to talk about it, how do we think about these issues? And to speak consistently about not only abortion, but also about the intrinsic worth of a 13 year old who was killed um, yesterday um, by a police officer, how do we think about that? We can't be afraid to speak to that if we're going to speak to other issues. It's, this is human life we're talking about. And we begin with the Bible, and that informs how we view God how we view the world, and our place in it. And so if we if we start with the Bible, we're going to find a better route at consistency. If we start with our experience, we're going to end up making the Bible fit what we want it to, and in the end, have a God who looks a lot like us. And so to quote um, the medieval scholar, Andy Minio, actually Christian rapper, who once said, God made us in his image, and he didn't ask us to return the favor.
0: mm. Yeah, this gets to that. Um, how do I view the Bible? Um, mm-hmm. You know, is it first a mirror and then a window? Because I think that's, hmm. that's necessary. Like, right? I mean, I have to, um, I have to let the Bible, I have to let God show me in Scripture who I am before I am really able to look through Scripture into the world and understand it. Um, you know, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think of Psalm 8, you know, it, it, it's bookended with those beautiful words, O oh Lord, our Lord. And of course, the word, if you looked at it in the English translations, could be in all caps because it's God's revealed name, his holy revealed name. So it's, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth? That's the beginning and the end verse of the psalm. And in the middle, it asks the question, what is man? And it's a reminder that we understand what is man, humanity, in light of the God who reveals himself. And the further we remove ourselves from the authority of the God who has revealed himself, the more confused we will be about what it means to be human.
0: Mm. All right. Also at the Weekend Worldview Reader at Theolatte.com, Dan has uh, a two-part Mirror Creation series. Um, Why don't you tell us what's in there?
1: Yeah, so this is—I needed to record one of my lectures because I teach multiple sections of theology at Cedarville University, and so I needed to record one so that I could leave town for the Gospel Coalition. And so I recorded it through Facebook Live, thought I'd make it available on my website. And what I'm trying to do with my students is to say, let's look at Genesis 1 and 2. I want you to, like, kind of turn off your theological brain in terms of all the things you believe about creation for a moment— and let's look at what's minimally in the text in Genesis 1 and 2. So if students get in groups and they come up with their list, they can only include on their list things that are explicitly taught in Genesis 1 and 2. And students are always surprised to, to find that there are certain things that they believed about it that's just not clear in, clear in the text. There are other things that some of them are enamored by certain theories, perhaps theistic evolution, that just doesn't seem to line up with the text. So I tell them, let's just begin with the text and build out from there. So that two-part lecture is me trying to model that for my students.
0: All right. Uh, so Jessica Ulu, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, but um, she has been a student of yours at Cedarville. She graduated last year. She's now here in, uh, in my Yay. city and working as a research assistant at, um, at a university here. And um, she's in my small group at church.
1: Oh, very cool. I know. And so you did.
0: uh, Yeah. So you did a good job. That's what I was. That's where this was going around (laughs) to. She uh, she was in your classes and you did a good job. So there you go. That's your pat on the back for today. Um, Actual evidence that Dan DeWitt teaches real people in real (laughs) classrooms. Not just, you know, not just talking with us. Yeah, there you go. So I love it. So, hey, thanks as always for joining us. You guys need to check out what Dan is doing online. The website is Theolatte.com. We've been looking at things today from the Weekend Worldview Reader, and you can get it right there um, at his website. Um, Dan, thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Carmen. Have a great day.
0: Yeah, you too. We'll be right back. All right, we're going to lead off hour two with reference to a viral video featuring a bobcat and a guy in his driveway. Okay, so you probably have time to Google that and watch it before the second hour, but I got to tell you, this is something that you have to see, and it should probably be used in marriage counseling in every conversation going forward. Um, there's, a, there's a man being a man in the video, and frankly, a woman being a woman, and a bobcat being a bobcat. And um, here's the good news man wins man wins in the face off with the bobcat in a residential neighborhood i know now see now i've provoked you you want to go find it uh hashtag bobcat all over the place right now and that's what we're going to talk about uh at the opening of the hour and then i got uh i got adam Holtz. And a great conversation with Ellen Mary Dykus about toxic relationships. So that's in the second hour today. If you miss a if you miss a podcast or if you miss a, a show and you want to grab the podcast, you can go to myfaithradio.com later in the day, or you can always access it on the Faith Radio app. That's also a great way to share it with someone else. Hey, check out all the cool stuff that we're doing and giving away at MyFaithRadio Radio at the website, myfaithradio.com. We got another hour up next. We'll be right back.